excited this morning to dive in. We, uh, we continue uh, on through our series. We started back in mid-April that will carry us for a couple more weeks uh, entitled I Am. It's based on the I Am statements of Jesus in John's gospel account. Uh, many of those very famous statements you probably heard before. I am uh, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am, I am the vine. I am the light of the world and, and so forth and so on. Um, all of those statements are meant to tell us something about who Jesus is and what that means for us. Um, we've talked about this week in and week out. Everyone has their take on Jesus. Some would say he's a good teacher. Some would say he's a wise philosopher. Some would say he was even a prophet, maybe. Even those of us who believe that he really, truly is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world will oftentimes attempt to soften him. We'll attempt to conform him into our image because it's less painful than having him conform us into his image And so what we're after in this series is really the question, who does Jesus say that he is? Who is Jesus according to Jesus? That's what we're trying to get after as a church throughout the course of this run through the I Am Statements of Jesus and John's Gospel account. John's really helpful. He tells us that that is his aim as he records his Gospel account in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, these things are written, including the statement that we'll look at this morning, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so, I've said it for weeks now. If you come in this morning uncertain of who Jesus is, and we're all trying to to get a clearer picture and understanding of who Jesus is, the book of of John is a fantastic place to camp out in the scriptures. It, It provides us with an opportunity to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Each of these statements functions, you could say, as a facet in this multifaceted jewel that as you just spin it, you see something more complex and beautiful with respect to who Jesus is and what that means for us. And so last week we looked at the first of two deeply interconnected statements uh, of Jesus in this series, namely, I am the door of the sheep. We got that sheep shepherd word picture started. And this morning we're going to look at the second of those two Sheep shepherd metaphors found in John chapter 10. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up this morning to John chapter 10. We'll be in verses 11 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, you have a translation that's difficult to understand. That Bible's yours. Church's gift to you for free. Um, we're not gonna we're not gonna do that thing where where we try to force feed Mother's Day onto a particular passage of Scripture this morning. Uh, rather, what, I, what I'd like to say as we get ready to dive into this passage is this. Whatever you bring into this room this morning, because we don't all bring joy. Some of us bring sorrow on this particular day uh, of the calendar. Some of you come in and you've lost a mom. Some of you come in and you're not able to have children. And so we all bring things into this room, both joy and and sorrow, and, and what I really think the best thing that I could do this morning is to point you to Jesus, the good shepherd, no matter what you bring into this room. That, 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 is, that, that is where healing, restoration, joy, um, all of that comes in seeing Jesus for who he is and, and looking at him intently and savoring him in the midst of what we see. And so that's my aim this morning. Let me pray for us, and, and we'll jump in. We'll go ahead, and, and we'll get to work. God, if, for those of us who, who do love and follow and know Jesus, we are 
your beloved children with whom you are well pleased. Not because we've pleased you by way of our own merits, but because Jesus has pleased you on our behalf by way of his merits for us through his atoning death. God, I pray this morning that we would most certainly understand theologically what it means that, Jesus, you are the good shepherd and that we are your sheep. But I pray that it doesn't remain in the realm of intellectual assent, that, it, that, that we existentially walk away with a feeling sense of what it means to be a part of your flock, what it means that you are leading us by your voice, that we would experience the, the beauty of a relationship with the God who made us and redeemed us. That, that, that it's, not, it's not ritual, it's not religion, it's not... It, it's a, you, you redeem us into a relationship and you interact with us personally. Give us a feeling sense of that as we leave this place this morning by way of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Would you do that? In the name of the Good Shepherd, Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, as we pick up the story where we left off last week, if you were here last week, you'll recall that, that Jesus, in John chapter 9, has just healed a man blind from birth. You can, you can read about that encounter. I encourage you to go back uh, sometime this week and, and read about that leading into John chapter 10. But what we find out is the Pharisees don't like uh, what this recently healed man has to say about Jesus. And so they, they throw him out of the synagogue. Imagine that, if we just grab one of you and just toss you out like a bouncer in a club this morning. Super socially awkward. The man has a follow-up encounter with Jesus, which causes him to fall at Jesus' feet in worship, we're told. Jesus goes on to tell the man what the miracle of giving him physical sight was actually about. It's ultimately a parable about spiritual sight and blindness. And Jesus essentially goes on to declare that he came to illumine the hearts of those who will acknowledge their spiritual blindness, which the Pharisees refuse to do. They're listening intently on this entire conversation between Jesus and this man, and they enter the conversation themselves, asking Jesus if he considers them to be blind. It's not a question presented in humility, but rather arrogance. And Jesus affirms that they are, in fact, spiritually blind, and he shows them their blindness through this sheep-shepherd word picture. If you go back to verses 1 through 5, which sets the stage for both of those I am statements in John chapter 10, we, we looked at it last week. We'll look at it again this week in order to lay a foundation. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus says this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. We talked about this last week. In these first five verses, Jesus is presenting the Pharisees with a word picture. And it's a word picture that carried us last week. It'll carry us again this week. It's a picture that has a lot of shepherding language in it, right? You have the, the lingo of sheep pens and doors or gates to the sheep pen and shepherds and flocks of sheep and gatekeepers and strangers, thieves and robbers. In, in this first century Middle Eastern shepherding culture, sheep were held in a pen known as a sheepfold. It was the kind of courtyard that would uh, surround either one or several houses. 
And the sheepfold was surrounded by walls meant to keep out thieves and, and predators. And the, the way sheep would get in and out of the sheepfold was through this tiny little passageway, this tiny little door. The sheep would stay in the sheepfold at night for protection and would go out in the light of day to graze. And the families who kept their various flocks in this one sheepfold would hire a gatekeeper or a watchman to guard the door, to guard the gate at night so that no predators could could get in and get access to the sheep to harm them or steal them. And last week, we talked about the implications of this word picture in light of Jesus' declaration, I am the door of the sheep. And so we talked about Jesus as the only way to salvation as well as the gateway to security and abundant life. But Jesus doesn't just identify himself with the the gate or the door of the sheepfold in verses 1 through 5. He also identifies himself with the shepherd of the flock. According to this word picture that Jesus paints in verses 1 through 5, the shepherd himself would lead the flock in and out of the sheepfold. And they would follow him because they would recognize his voice. And he would go before them, leading them to green grass. Jesus uses this shepherding word picture both to say something about himself and to um, say something about the wickedness of the Pharisees. Last week, we spent some time on verses 6 through 10 as we looked at Jesus as the door of the sheep. And so this week, we're going we're gonna to fast forward. We're going to jump over verses 6 through 10 and move from verse 5 right into verse 11 and work our way through verse 18 as we look at Jesus as shepherd. Verse 11, Jesus says very plainly, I am the good shepherd. Okay, right off the bat, we need to clear up a misconception about Jesus. Anybody ever seen this picture before of Jesus, the good shepherd? Um, I think it's partly true. I think it's meant to communicate something beautiful, which is that um, Jesus loves us. He cares for the sheep. And, and that, is, that is part of what it means that Jesus is the good shepherd. Um, but this is not the comprehensive biblical picture of a shepherd. A shepherd's job was exhausting. It was rigorous, at times even dangerous. We should see some bruises on Jesus in this picture. Um, some, some bloody knuckles maybe would be a good addition to this picture. It's why Jesus goes on to say, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherds are, are willing to risk their lives for the sheep entrusted in their care. There's a, there's a willingness to fight off wolves and bears and other predators. You, you would not last long in the shepherding vocation if you ran away at the first sign of danger. If, if you got skittish and abandoned the flock the first time a wolf came into view, you'd be floating your resume on monster.com. You just would. Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. You, you can probably see where this thing's going. We'll get there soon enough. But for now, notice the distinction that Jesus makes in verses 12 through 13. Pretty incredible. He says this, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Notice that we're not talking about strangers, thieves, and robbers, going back to verses 1 through 5. We're now talking about a hired hand. We're talking about someone who doesn't exactly care about the sheep, but is, in fact, responsible for the sheep. We, we don't exactly know if Jesus is talking about the religious leaders here explicitly. It's possible that he's simply using this, this language of a hired hand to show how, just how he is the good shepherd in comparison, what makes him so good. 
But if he is, in fact, talking about the religious leaders here, it's a pretty strong indictment, is it not? It's the declaration, you're committed to your responsibilities as a leader in the church insofar as the paycheck is good and the risk is low. Remember, remember from last week, the, uh, the Ezekiel 34 passage that we looked at where God said to the religious leaders in Ezekiel's day, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. It's easy to connect the dots, I think, to pastoral ministry. There are a lot of pastors who are in it for the paycheck. There are a lot of pastors that are in it because they don't know what else to do with their lives. They went to seminary. What other kind of job are you going to get? And so wolves come and go as they please because the pastor isn't interested in risking anything. Sound doctrine is not guarded. False teaching creeps into the church. They don't care for the wounded sheep because it, it requires too much. And so pastoral care is not readily available to those who are hurting. They'd rather coast than look for new fields of green grass. And thus there is no vision for, for where the flock is going. It's fairly easy to connect the dots to pastoral ministry, shepherds who function more as, as hired hands. But I think, I think it's fair to say that we all, in a more broad sense, can function this way, right? That it's really easy for us to steer clear of difficult doctrinal conversations with others. It's easy for us to steer clear of people in the church with the most wounds, the most baggage, it's easy for us to steer clear of the serving opportunities that appear to be the most taxing, whatever those may be based on your, your skill set and your passions. It's easy to walk away from the flock when the grass doesn't seem so green. And, and here's the beauty of this passage. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus isn't afraid of our most difficult doctrinal questions. Jesus doesn't steer clear of us in our seasons of brokenness. He doesn't run out on us. He doesn't walk away from us in the hard times. Why? Because he's not a hired hand. If you're a Christian, you belong to him. I thought about this this week. Have you ever gone into a rental home after someone rented it for a couple years? They usually look like disaster areas, right? Because the person renting the space doesn't own the space. It's not entrusted into their care fully. And so it's kind of a, whatever we need to do to get by, we're not going to put a lot of money into this. Uh, we're, we're going to simply coast our way through the lease, and then we're going to leave it behind, and it's the owner's problem to deal with. There's a difference between rental properties and home ownership. Uh, just by way of, of walking through uh, properties that would fall under either of those two categories and seeing how they've been treated. What this passage is essentially saying is that you are not rental property to Jesus if you're a Christian. That if you're a Christian, you belong to him. He bought you. We'll talk about the purchase price in just a second. But hear me when I say that Jesus is not going anywhere on you. If you are one of his sheep, he is with you in the joy. He is with you in the sorrow. He is with you in safety. He is with you in danger. It goes on to say in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. 
the, the declarations just get more and more astounding. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. There's a bond between Jesus and his followers that's likened to the bond between Jesus and God the Father. That's crazy. Like, we should be mind blown by that for just a second. That's crazy. Father, Son, and Spirit have been a part of this intra-Trinitarian dance that's been taking place since before the foundations of the world. Eternal intimacy and joy. You can read more about, more about that in uh, John chapter 17, Jesus' priestly prayer. Here Jesus says, that's the kind of relationship that I invite people into. It's quite unbelievable. Going back to verses 4 and 5. When he has brought out all his own, the shepherd, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. In, in Jesus' day, um, this is where our understanding of shepherding is not so helpful. In Jesus' day, there was no sheepdog nipping at the heels of the flock from behind to try to keep the flock moving in a particular direction. The shepherd went before the flock, and the flock moved in response to his voice. We're not just talking about facts, but recognition. We're not just talking about the bio on someone. It's an altogether different thing to be able to pick a voice <clears throat> out of a lineup. It's like when I come into the door uh, after a day of work, and I walk in, and I say, Hey, guys, I'm home, and my kids haven't seen my face yet, but all of a sudden... Uh, depending on the kid, I either hear Daddy, that's Quinn, or Dowie, which is Lanier. But either way, they both know who it is. They haven't seen me yet. It's not that they're looking at a Wikipedia fact sheet on me. They know my voice. They know what my voice sounds like. They recognize their daddy. And so they come running around the corner to come embrace me. If, if you're a Christian, in some sense, you know Jesus that way. Not the Wikipedia fact sheet on Jesus. Not, not the systematic theology of Jesus. But a relationship. An intimate relationship with Jesus Christ himself, the good shepherd. An encountering of his voice. A following where he's leading. A discernment to sniff out the voice of strangers. I.e. lies. Anti-gospels. It's about knowing him. It's about knowing his voice. And, and not only that, it's about being known by him. You, you do know that Jesus knows you better than you know yourself, right? He knows his sheep. He knows the hairs on your head down to the number. He knows how many grays you have. He knows you. He knows the darkest parts of you. Using that sheep shepherd word picture, he knows exactly what it is that has a way of luring you away from the flock. He knows. He knows just how deep your sin and stubbornness runs. He knows and, and yet, guess what? He has zero intention of putting you up on the market. Zero. That's love. That's grace. He goes on to say, I lay down my life for the sheep. That the hired hand loves his life more than the sheep, while Jesus loves the sheep more than his life. Jesus sees the wolves of sin and death, and he doesn't run away. He doesn't leave us to be devoured. Rather, he draws those enemies from us and onto himself. That Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. We are all blemished lambs. Jesus is the only lamb without blemish, the Bible tells us. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says it this way. He says, 
You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, that you're not a rental. You've been bought. If you don't walk away with anything else that I've said this morning, walk away with that. Preach that to yourself all week long this week. You've been bought. You belong to Jesus. The purchase price being his very blood. He lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. Our sins were put upon him and he was punished in our place. That The Bible teaches that the good shepherd is also the sacrificial lamb. As you continue through this morning's passage, the rest of the passage is meant to answer a couple of questions in light of that beautiful, glorious truth that you've been bought with, bought with the uh, pleasure. Can't talk this morning. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. Two questions. One, what does this flock of Jesus look like? What does this flock look like? And two, where's the proof of purchase? How do we know? What's the receipt on that look like? Verse 16 answers the first of those two questions. What does the flock of Jesus look like? Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Remember, Jesus is talking to a crowd of Jews here. Most homogenous crowd you could possibly imagine would make Peachtree City look incredibly diverse by comparison. And Jesus says, I have sheep outside this fold. They belong to the one flock with me as their shepherd. That God's plan is global. He's not, he's not looking to simply save people who look and think and talk and dress like you and me. Listen to this description of the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. It says, by its light, by the light of the new Jerusalem, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. That there's this global diverse citizenship that will comprise the new Jerusalem. That if you don't like ethnic diversity, you probably won't like heaven. And here's the real kicker. Hell's going to be just as ethnically diverse. So if you're a racist, you can't win either way. You lose. Like, that's just how the Bible teaches it. That God loves to save people from all walks of life. Because it puts on display his sovereignty, his power. That there's no type of person on the planet that God isn't capable of saving. Revelation 7, 9. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. I don't know about you, but I mean, I can't wait for the cups of coffee that are going to happen in the new heaven and earth with that global, diverse, melting pot of people. Hey, how'd you meet Jesus? And just hear that story unfold from across the globe. It's going to be incredible. Heaven is not going to be boring. What is this flock of Jesus look like? Verse 16, globally diverse. And here's another thing to consider when you think about verse 16. Another way to know if you're following the voice of, of Jesus, answer, look around and see if you're in step with his flock. I mean, using that word picture, that makes sense, right? When people are not listening to Jesus, when, when, we're, when we're not listening, when we're turning to sin and unbelief, we tend to veer away. We tend to pull away from other people, don't we? We tend to retreat into isolation. We remove ourselves from community. That using this sheep shepherd word picture, it's important that we look around and assess whether we're in stride with the flock. And, and I'm not simply talking about... Are you attending the right programs and gatherings? I'm talking about moving in the same direction as other sheep that are following Jesus. Engaging relationally with those people. Talking to them about 
they're, they're intentional listening to the good shepherd and, and keeping in stride with the flock. Perhaps one of the most practical ways that we can move toward the voice of the good shepherd is to simply move toward his flock. And maybe that's what he's calling you to this morning, to step away from the isolated peripheral edges of the hillside and to fold back in to the flock. Verse 16 answers the question of what Jesus' flock is like. Verse 17 answers the second question. Where's the proof of purchase in terms of our belonging to Jesus? I mean, let's be honest. If the story ends with, with Jesus' death on behalf of, half of the flock, we're all hopeless. Because we're all without a shepherd. There is no voice to listen to. There is no voice to follow, right? We still need to be led to green grass. It, it's not enough that that Jesus died to protect us from the wolves of sin and death. We need him to do more than that. And so thanks be to God for verses 17 and 18, which say this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Yet, yet another declaration that if Jesus is not God in the flesh, he's a raving lunatic. He, he's everything the Pharisees believe and declare him to be. It's one thing to say that you have the authority to lay down your life. We can all say things like that, right? I would die for my wife and daughters. I would step in front of a moving bus in order to rescue them, in order to protect them. It's one thing to say that. It's an altogether different thing to say that you have the authority to take your life up again. Right? I could say I would step in front of a moving bus for my kids. I can't say that if that bus killed me, I would come back to life momentarily after. If you're dead, you have zero authority to make yourself undead. But that's exactly what Jesus says he has the authority to do. It's a double indictment on the Pharisees, really. The Pharisees won't even die for their flock. And so Jesus says, I'm going to do one thing you won't do and one thing you can't do. Not only am I going to die for my flock, which selfishly you won't do, but I'm going to rise from the grave, which you can't do. Once again, C.S. Lewis, we've been talking about it for weeks now. You can't say he's not divine and yet still believe him to be a good teacher or wise philosopher. If he's not God, he's either a liar or a crazy person for saying things like this. According to Jesus, the proof of purchase that you've been bought with his precious blood and are truly a part of his flock is the resurrection. That the resurrection reveals that God the Father accepted Jesus' payment for sin in full on our behalf. That a dead shepherd is not good enough. We need a resurrected shepherd. That Christianity is not just about being saved from the wolves of sin and death. It's about being saved to Jesus, the living shepherd who leads us and guides us and heals us and protects us and cares for us on our own. And I hope you see this in this word picture. On our own, we're defenseless and stubborn. We're sheep. On our own, we're prone to stray. On our own, we're completely directionless. But we're not on our own. The good shepherd is alive and well. He's alive and we are his. We are not rental property church. You belong to him. In union with him. You can know eternal intimacy and joy with him. It's quite amazing when you think about this passage, that the global Jesus of verse 16 and the personal Jesus of verse 14 are one and the same. Is it true that God so loves the world, John 3, 16? Yes and amen. At the same time, it's also true that Jesus loves me, this I know. And that might be what many of us in this room need to sit with this morning 
to sit with the words of that familiar children's song and just, just let that truth pour over us until it seeps down into the deep recesses of our being and moves us. That Christianity is about a personal relationship with the good shepherd. This, this passage blows up cultural Christianity. Just turns it upside down on its head. It's not about performing rituals, checking your boxes. It's about knowing and being known by this Jesus. The good shepherd who wasn't forced to die for you, but who was willing to lay down his life for you. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're the church, you're loved. And so let me ask you, do you know this shepherd? Are you his sheep? Do you know his voice? Do you, do you follow him? Or has your life been more about religious ritual than a relationship with the one who laid down his life for you? He invites you into a relationship with him this morning. He invites you to become a part of the flock and to follow where he leads. And if you're a Christian in this room, the question begs to be answered. Are you listening to his voice? Are you following where he leads? Or have you wandered away from the flock? This imagery is so rich. We could, we could deal with a hundred different existential questions that come out of a passage like this, both Christian and non-Christian alike in this room. And so as we move into a time of reflection, I invite you to do just that. Notice that we didn't go into a, a systematic theology of how you hear the voice of the good shepherd because Jesus doesn't do that with the Pharisees. He doesn't get into the, the weeds of of hearing the voice of God through the scriptures and by the leading of the spirit and with the wisdom of the family of God. He doesn't get into all of the systematics. He's simply presenting to them this question, do you hear my voice? Do you have ears to hear? Are you following where I lead? And so I would encourage you to, to sit with that question this morning. If you are a Christian, you know, you know his voice. What is he saying to you this morning? What questions is he calling you to wrestle with this morning as part of his flock? And as a part of that time of reflection, let's also rejoice in the, in the beautiful truth that we're not rental property to Jesus. That if you're a Christian, you belong to him.